Body. Thank you. Well, this morning we continue a series of sermons on the book of Isaiah. Last week we looked at chapter 6. Today we look at chapter 7. And if you have a Bible with you, or perhaps you have the scriptures accessible to you on some infernal contraption or brain-seizing device, then you might like to have the scriptures open um, at the passage today that we're looking at, Isaiah chapter 7. And the passage begins with a wonderful summary statement. Isaiah 7 verse 1. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem. But they could not overpower it. Well, sometimes when a storyteller tells you a story, sometimes they'll tell you the ending right from the beginning so you know what's going to happen. We get to know right from the start that the two kings on the warpath are no real threat. They're no real danger. This plan will not succeed. This storyteller's story is about something else. Verse 2. Now, the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. This is a story about a frightened king and a frightened people. This is a story about fear. The year is 734 BC. The king in question, his name is Ahaz. As verse 1 tells us, he is the grandson, not the son, he is the grandson of King Uzziah, who we, talk about, who we spoke about last week. Last week we looked at a story set in the year King Uzziah died, the year 740 BC. After King Uzziah died, then came King Jotham, who reigned for 16 years. Then he died and his son Ahaz took the throne. But verse 2 doesn't call him Ahaz. Verse 2 reminds us of the fact that Ahaz is of the house of David. Ahaz, he's not just any old king. He's king of Jerusalem. He is God's anointed king. In Hebrew, Messiah. In Greek, Christ. God's anointed king in the line of David, recipient of all of those wonderful, extraordinary promises that God has made to David's descendants forever. Those promises made in places like 2 Samuel chapter 7, Psalm number 2, Psalm 89, etc., etc., included in Ahaz's um, in job titles that he's entitled to. He, he's entitled to be called king, messiah. Christ, Son of David, Son of God. So Ahaz is the king of a country called Judah, or Judea. Its capital city is Jerusalem. Sorry, my mud, mud map's not terribly good, but immediately to the north of the nation of Judah is the nation of 
Israel, and its capital city is Samaria. Israel and Judah, you might think, hold on, I thought they were the one country. And yes, actually, they were actually technically the one country, the 12 tribes of Israel. But at this point in history, following a civil war, the 12 tribes are living as two separate nations. The big international threat was Assyria, the rising superpower of those times, a shockingly cruel and vicious people, even for those days, and their capital city was Nineveh. You may not be able to see it, but it's right out on the upper right-hand side of that map, Assyria, capital city of Nineveh on the river Tigris. Their desire as a superpower will be to conquer and dominate and suck all the wealth out of the the nations surrounding them. No one country is strong enough to stand up against them. So then, King Rezin of Aram, of the nation of Aram, makes a treaty with Pekah, king of Israel, to present a united face against the Assyrians. But even two nations is not going to be strong enough to stand up to Assyria. They need, they know they need at least one other nation to join their coalition. They ask Ahaz to join them. He refuses. So in response, they send a task force south to conquer Judah to remove Ahaz as king so that they can install their own puppet king, the son of Tabeel, whoever that may have been, and he'll do as they say. So then the house of David, that is King Ahaz ruling in Jerusalem, has been told. Aram that is, resin of Damascus, has allied itself with Ephraim, that is, Pekah, king of Israel, of the capital city, Samaria. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. They are deeply frightened. They are fearful and anxious and scared. Verse 3, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Shi'ah Yashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. Well, Ahaz is expecting a a siege. He's inspecting vital resources. In this case, it's the city's water supply. And we can imagine all this frantic activity. We can imagine the panic moving through the populace as they hear about these great army coming against them, the loud voices in Ahaz's ears and the loud voices in Ahaz's head screaming, do something. Well, something must be done and this is something, so do it. In fact, um, Ahaz is inspecting the water supplies, but he has three choices, politically speaking. Firstly, He can join the Aram-Samaria Alliance Task Force and go to war against Assyria. We understand that Ahaz already ruled out that option. He's not going to do that. It's too scary for him. Secondly, he can join with the Assyrians themselves and ask Tiglath-Pileser III to rescue him. And in fact, we know from the Bible passage that Naomi has just read to us We know that that is exactly what he did. But his third option would be do nothing at all. And 
in those anxious times. It could be that Ahaz was so fearsomely busy in his preparations that perhaps if he'd been asked to meet with Isaiah, he would have refused. Perhaps we don't know. But the Lord tells Isaiah to go out and to take with him his son. This isn't the only mention of sons in the passage, but it is the only mention of this particular boy. Shia Yashub. Shia Yashub. Although the Lord tells Isaiah to take him with him, the boy is not ever mentioned again. Why is it important that this boy goes with his dad? Well, he'll stand as a mute witness, a mute witness to something. His name, Shia Yashub, can be translated into English in a variety of ways. It might be translated, a remnant will return. Or you could translate it, a remnant will repent. Or you could translate it, a remnant will survive. You can judge for yourself at the end of the story which translation you think is the most apt. Well, this is what the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, is to say to Ahaz, son of David. Verse 4. Be careful. Keep calm. And don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the son of Ramalia. Aram, Ephraim and Ramalia's son have plotted your ruin, saying, let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it amongst ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Yet this is what the Sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus has only risen. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. It will not take place. It will not happen. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. All this national hand-wringing is totally unnecessary. God has told Ahaz ahead of time nothing of what he fears will happen. But he needs to trust him completely. Not partially. He needs to trust him completely to put his full faith in the Lord. Isaiah is telling Ahaz, trusting God in this situation means do nothing at all. Why? Because the Lord Almighty, high and exalted, he is the head of Judah. Further, because Ahaz is the Lord's anointed, the descendant king of David, he can trust God to save him from his enemies because God has promised to save him from his enemies. That's why Ahaz can rest assured. That's why he doesn't need to be afraid. That's why he doesn't need an insurance policy. That's why he doesn't need to talk to Tiglath-Pileser III. But, of course, we know what actually happened. The Assyrians took the people of Ephraim into captivity. 
They deported them and they scattered them across their empire whilst simultaneously repopulating the area with captives from any number of other nations, giving rise to that northern kingdom, uh, giving rise to an extremely multicultural, multi-ethnicity nation that, by Jesus' day, would be deeply despised by the Jews of Jerusalem, and they would call them Samaritans. Well, let's return to Ahaz. Sometimes trusting God. What does it mean? What does it look like to trust God? Well, sometimes trusting God means being active when everyone around us is being inactive. For sure, trusting God often, perhaps usually, does not mean doing nothing. David was a man of incredible faith in the Lord. He trusted God to save him, but he knew when to run. And he knew when to hide. Nehemiah, that great man of faith from the Old Testament, has been described by another great man of faith, Peter Adam, as someone who, quote, worked like there was no prayer and prayed like there was no work. Sometimes trusting God gives us the faith to take a step forward when everyone else is just frozen stiff. But also sometimes trusting God means being inactive when those around us are frantic with activity. Sometimes trusting God means not buying toilet paper when everyone else around us is, frantically. Like you can't survive without toilet paper. Faith actually then is not buying toilet paper when actually you really want to buy toilet paper because everybody else is. And in this particular case, God is telling Ahaz very, very clearly, do nothing. Stand still. I will save you. Trust in me alone. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. The only activity Ahaz is being called to is the activity of standing, standing still. But sometimes, indeed oftentimes, trusting God can be very difficult, can't it? Sometimes actually we're, we're active when we should be inactive and inactive when we should be active. That's because we're sinners. Trusting God goes against the grain. Even though we know who God is in our heads... Somehow, we, somehow we, we, we find it difficult not to be compelled by our instincts just not to try and save ourselves nevertheless. And, and so it's, it's, it's astonishingly kind and merciful of God. The Lord is so gracious and kind. He is happy to give Ahaz a confirming sign. He's happy to give confirmation. Ask for a sign. Um, anything. Nothing's too hard. Verse 10, again the Lord spoke to Ahaz presumably through the prophet Isaiah. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. Well, Ahaz is here being given the power to ask for anything, any amazing miracle or astonishing sign in the deepest depths. Maybe, I don't know, let's divide the Sea of Galilee in two or in the highest heavens. Fire from heaven, perhaps, or maybe 
hailstones big as bas- basketballs? I don't know. What would you ask for? What sign would guarantee your trust? What sign? A dead man coming back from the dead. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And Ahaz's answer is despairingly awful. Firstly, he is willfully disobeying the Lord's prophet. He is refusing to do as he's told. To disobey a prophet is to disobey the Lord who sent him. This is sin. Second, he is justifying his disobedience using religious language. Ahaz uses the name of the Lord, Yahweh. I will not put Yahweh to the test. And he is quoting the Bible back at Isaiah. Deuteronomy 6.16, do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. So he is cloaking disobedience in apparent righteousness and in doing so suggesting that the prophet Isaiah was the one who was doing something indecent, indeed blasphemous. He's accusing the Lord's prophet of blasphemy. And the irony here is that by disobeying the Lord's prophet, He is most certainly putting the Lord to the test. Ahaz already knows what he's going to do, and he's not going to change his mind. We've read all about it this morning. He is going to make his own treaty with the Assyrians. He's going to ask Tiglath-Pileser III, king of Assyria, to come and save him. He's going with option B. And I think we can likewise assume that actually Isaiah, he already knows that that is precisely what Ahaz is going to do. So this is, answer, this is his answer back from Isaiah. Verse 13, Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Well, um, this is an extraordinary passage of Scripture. So much is being said in so few words. What does it all mean? Well, uh, working backwards with the last message first, it is saying you cannot trust the king of Assyria. One day, Judah will need to be saved from the Assyrians, so you can't be saved by the Assyrians. Do not put your trust in Tiglath-Pileser III. That's the last message. Moving to the middle, do not fear Rezin or Pechah. There'll be history soon. Indeed, toast. Do not be afraid. And indeed, within 12 years, both of the kings Ahaz was afraid of, were gone. 
Aram fell to Assyria in uh, 732 BC, in other words, two years later, and Israel fell in 722 BC, in other words, 12 years later. And this leads us backwards into considering the sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. Well, again, moving backwards, the point of the sign is timing. Whatever the sign is, the point of it is timing. A young woman will marry and give birth to a son. Traditionally, the age of knowing right from wrong is 12 years of age. By the time this boy is 12 years of age, and at that time he will be eating survival rations, yogurt and wild honey, the nations of Israel and Aram will be laid waste. And historically, that is exactly what happened. But who is Isaiah talking about? Who is this virgin? Certainly, the whole chapter revolves around verse 14. It's the most important verse in the whole chapter. An interpretation of this verse is fundamental to knowing what's going on. Who is she? Well, the word virgin simply means a young, unmarried woman living under her father's roof. Because neither the young woman nor, um, uh, um, nor the situation is named, but because she's not named, this sounds a lot like a parable to me. Um, it may or may not be a parable. If you disagree with that, that's fine. But it sounds like a parable to me because the central character's not named. And that is a feature of parables, by and large. A very good case can be made and is often made for this virgin to be symbolically a reference to the faithful believers within the city of Jerusalem, still trusting God. In other words, it's figurative, it's symbolic. That, a good case can be made for that, but that need not detain us now. Whoever this young girl is, she's not afraid. She's not scared. She's getting married. She's having a baby. She's naming her baby boy Emmanuel. God is with us. And if God is with us, who can be against us? She's not filled with fear. She trusts. The sign functions, curiously, as an encouragement, as a warning, but also as a stinging rebuke. As an encouragement, don't be afraid of those two kings. I have the situation in hand as a warning. I have the... Excuse me. As a warning, I... Have the situation in hand. Don't put your trust in Assyria. But thirdly, as a rebuke. In a patriarchal, honor, shame, hierarchical society, a virgin is a very low status person. Very low status. Female, young, unmarried, unnamed. And Isaiah is speaking to the king. Male, named, Married, titled, adult, king, son of David. 
the most exalted prince, the most exalted ruler in the land, is being disgraced by Isaiah by way of an unfavorable comparison with the opposite end of the honor-shamed spectrum. If an unnamed virgin child can trust God, move ahead, marry and have a son, by faith even name him Emmanuel, if a virgin can trust God, why the heck can't you? As a rebuke, the exhortation is clear. Repent. Put your faith in the Lord while you still have time. And join that remnant, that tiny proportion who still trust in the Lord and live lives of demonstrable trust. But still, it's a curious sign, isn't it? It's a curveball for us as, 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 as sinners. It's a, it's a curveball. What kind of sign would you like? Would you like, like me, would you like the kind of sign that is a massive power demonstration? Would you like unequivocal proof? Would you like a hand to appear and write it on a wall somewhere for you? What kind of sign would you like? But the kind of sign that God loves to give are those that retrospectively in the future show that those who trusted him were indeed right to do so. That's the kind of sign that God loves. Walking through a maelstrom of signs and wonders, Pharisees and teachers of the law come to Jesus and demand a sign. And Jesus said, no sign will be given you except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. No sign will be given you except that sign. God said to Moses, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Imagine if I invited you to dinner at my place, and you asked me for my address. You asked me for directions, and I said, the sign that you have made it to my house for dinner will be that you have made it to my house for dinner. That would be nonsense coming from me, but with God it makes perfect sense. You don't need guidance if you have a guide. Ahaz was hungry for guidance, we read in Second Kings, but you don't need guidance if you have a guide, if he is with you. The sign, of course, is made perfect in Jesus, as Matthew tells us, perfectly a virgin. What was conceived of her was from the Holy Spirit. Perfectly, the child will be God with us, literally and truly and perfectly, God on display. Perfectly Messiah, perfectly Christ, perfectly Son of David, perfectly Son of God. Perfectly, he will save us from our enemies, even from sin. Who, who then can be against us? Returning now to Ahaz's desire, his desire to form a comforting uh, alliance with Assyria and have some sense of security, Isaiah continues, In that day, verse 18, In that day, the Lord will whistle for flies from the Nile Delta in Egypt, and for bees from the land of Assyria. 
They will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the crevices in the rocks, on all the thorn bushes and at all the water holes. In that day, the Lord will use a razor hired from beyond the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria, to shave your head and private parts and to cut off your beard also. In that day, a person will keep alive a young cow and two goats. And because of, out of the extra milk they give, there will be curds to eat. All who remain in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, in every place where there were a thousand vines worth a thousand silver shekels, there will only be briars and thorns. Hunters will go there with bow and arrow, for the land will be covered with briars and thorns. As for all the hills once cultivated by the hoe, you will no longer go there for fear of the briars and thorns. They will become places where cattle are turned loose and where sheep run. Um, in, in that verse, the words abundance and curds and honey can confuse us. We might think, of, uh, think that we're looking at a picture of plenty. No, it's the opposite. Isaiah is talking about hands to mouth. He's talking about survival rations. Jerusalem, the city, and Judah, the nation, will go in 12 short years from a rich prosperous, urbane, fashionable, and sophisticated society to desperately poor, living hand to mouth, a lonely and desolate wasteland. Well, them's the facts, but the point is not that Isaiah can foretell economic doom, but rather that all of this, all of this, is directly from the hand of the Lord, who is sovereignly in charge. The Assyrians look like they are straight from hell. And in a sense, they are. But ultimately, they're just simply a tool in God's hand. A remnant will return. A remnant will repent. A remnant will survive. Shia Yashub. When uh, bad news looms... When there's a terrible, terrible danger on the horizon, I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe disaster will strike. Maybe it won't. I don't know. When bad news looms, a terrible danger is on the horizon, I don't know what you should do. Maybe do nothing. Maybe get married. Maybe have a baby. I don't know. When bad news looms, when there's a terrible danger on the horizon, this one thing we do know. We can trust God. He will guide. For he is with us, Emmanuel, through Jesus Christ, his son. Fear not, for I am with you, says the Lord.